0: listening to
1: Nightlight. Hi and welcome to this special Valentine's edition of Nightlight. When I was praying about the content of today's show, I happened to come across a compilation of stories in the depths of my computer called Valentine's Tales that I don't ever remember seeing, let alone reading before. And there's some truly inspiring stories there, some very short, others a little longer, some really funny, others extremely touching. I'm going to enjoy doing on the program today what I love to do best, and that is read to you. I've picked some of my favorites that I'm sure you will enjoy as much as I have. And then for the music, well, we have something old and something brand new. Brand new I've just received an album of beautiful instrumentals from Michael Fogarty and they're going to provide the mood music for the stories and the songs are all on the topic of love and they're all from my oldie goldie folder in my song library. Songs that were hits in my early years in radio. All of the songs you're going to hear today are between 30 To 35 years old Many of them are from artists Who all these years later Are still recording And contributing their music Now to Nightlight That includes Michael Fogarty Who penned this first love song It's a classic That's been recorded a number of times since But this is the original version Sung by Rachel Of the Stars and Beggars trio It's called always soon So nice to hear that version of that song again. That's Rachel singing, always penned by Michael Fogarty.
0: With music to soothe and calm your soul, you're listening to Nightlife.
1: Life Lessons from Lovebirds by Vicki Lynn Aggie. Recently, my husband and I were walking through a local mall near closing time when we decided to stop and take a look around the pet store. As we made our way past the cages of poodles and Pomeranians, tabby cats and turtles, our eyes caught sight of something that immediately charmed us, a pair of peach-faced lovebirds. Unlike many other lovebirds we encountered there, this particular pair looked truly in love. In fact, they snuggled and cuddled next to each other the whole time we watched them. Throughout the next few days, my mind returned to the image of those two delightful birds. I admired their devotion and felt their very presence inspiring. Apparently, these birds had the same effect on my husband because he showed up late from work one night shortly thereafter clutching an elegant birdcage that housed those two precious creatures and introduced them as new additions to the family. I've watched these lovebirds and made the following observations about life and love. 1. If you spend too much time looking in the mirror, it's easy to lose your balance. 2. Always keep a pleasant look on your face, even if your cage needs cleaning. 3. If your mate wants to share your perch with you, move over. 4. The real treats in life usually come only after you've cracked a few holes. Five, it takes two to snuggle. Six, sometimes your mate can see mites you didn't even know you had. Seven, singing draws more affection than squawking. Eight, it's only when your feathers get ruffled that your true colors really show. Nine, too many toys can be distracting. Ten, when you have love in your heart, everyone around you will find joy in your presence.
2: It's Nightlight. What a delight.
1: Yes, a delightful edition of Nightlight as we enjoy together some Valentine's tales and Valentine's songs, these songs on the topic of love and testimonies on a wide variety of kinds of love, including, of course, romantic love, as is the next story after the next song, which was written by none other than Charlton Heston
3: The world may not be like it was When we were growing up Things move so fast We have a hard time Keeping up Our lives have changed In so many ways And that's a fact But love Yes, love still makes the world go round Presidents and governments have come and gone They've even changed some countries' names since we were young Things have changed in so many ways and that's a fact But love, yes, love still makes the world go round All things change But true love will never let you down And when you're looking all around To find some solid ground That's when love will search and seek you out Put an end to all your doubt And be a rock on which to stand The plans of peace We dreamed with ease when we were young Have turned to wars on distant shores and here at home In a world where nothing's constant You can rest assured that love, yes love Still makes the world go round All things change but true love will never let you down you are looking all around To find some solid ground That's when love will search and seek you out Put an end to all your doubt And be a rock on which to stand Well, the world may not be like it was when we were growing up Things move so fast We have a hard time keeping up In a world where nothing's constant You can rest assured that love Yes, love still makes the world go round One thing never changes That's the light and power of love Yes, love still and always will Is destined to make the world go round
1: My Girl, My Wife by Charlton Heston I entered Northwestern University in the fall of 1941, a shy, skinny, ill-dressed boy on the $300 scholarship from the Winnetka Community Theatre. For the first two or three days in my theatre course, I sat behind a girl named Lydia Clark. All I saw was her tumbling mane of black Irish hair, which made me tremble. She bent over her desk, taking notes. I sat bemused, taking note only of her. Between classes, I made terse offhand remarks. Hi there, how are you doing? "'but I couldn't figure out how to advance the relationship. "'I'd never even been on a date. "'Girls expected to be taken out and bought hamburgers and Cokes "'and taken home in cars. "'I didn't have any money. "'I didn't drive a car or know how to dance. "'Girls? I didn't have a clue.' "'Fate, as they say, took her hand. "'Lydia and I were cast in the same bill of plays.' I was in Francesca de Rimini, playing a medieval lover, all tights and curled hair and daggers at the belt. Lydia was in a moody English piece called The Madras House. During dress rehearsal, could she have been nudging fate along? Lydia asked me how to speak her opening line. She told me she was about to enter and say, ''Minnie, my frog is dead.'' Well, of course, I knew how that line should be read. I had firm ideas about all the performances. This was conversation I knew. I just had no idea how to stop. On opening night, my medieval bit was first, and I decided it was terrible. As I brooded in a corner of the dressing room, Lydia came in and said, "'I thought you were marvellous. Carrie Grant would have thought of twenty funny or engaging replies. I stuck out my tongue. In an infinity of female wisdom, Lydia neither walked out nor hit me. Finally, I said in a strangled voice, "Uh, "'What I mean is uh, I'd I'd like to talk to you about it. Could we go and uh, have some coffee?' Yes, she would like that. This to the music of the spheres.' But later, as we walked to the coffee shop, I realised I had no money, not a nickel. I couldn't tell the celestial beauty beside me. All I could do was silently pray that I'd find a pal I could hit up for a loan. I did, Bill Sweeney, who lent me a quarter. May his name be written in the golden book. Lydia and I had tea because it would last longer. You got more hot water free. We sat there for some two hours talking about everything. After I left her at the dorm, I ran home along the dark streets saying, I love her, I love her, over and over. And I did too. Never doubt that this can happen. I'd barely spoken to her before that night, but I knew absolutely. What are the odds? One in a hundred? A thousand? It happened to me. The fall passed in a hazy mix of work and love. Then, on December the 7th, 1941, the Japanese attacked Pearl Harbor. Every healthy male between 18 and 45 knew where he'd be before long, in uniform. I enlisted in the Army Air Forces. During the six months before I was called up, Lydia and I continued to share classes, act and work in stage crews together. In love is an inadequate description for me. Try obsessed. But that was from my end. I don't think Lydia was even in love at that point. She kept me at arm's length, waiting to see if I might ripen into an actual human being. But she did go out with me, so she must have been drawn to me a little. Since I had no money, we seldom went out on real dates. We walked along the lakefront a lot. I remember once it snowed and she took my arm. I never moved my elbow the whole 40 minutes we walked, with the flakes whirling down, coating her glove and the sleeve of my jacket. In the spring, we often stood beside a lilac bush at school, embracing for 10 minutes at a time. By my last weeks on campus, I was preoccupied with getting Lydia into bed, or married to me, She rejected both options with adamantine resolve. She had no intention of getting pregnant or wed. She was determined to get her degree. Desperately, I fell back on the ploy soldiers have used for centuries. You realize you may never see me again. We, We must have something to carry in our hearts. It may be years. It may be never. It was a heartbreaking performance, not least because I meant it. It never dented her resolve. After I left for basic training, I redoubled my effort to get Lydia to marry me. Just think, darling, I wrote, if we're married and I get killed, you get $10,000 free and clear. This appeal, eminently rational to my Scots soul, failed to move her. Exhausted by my grind of basic training, I gave up even mentioning marriage in my letters. One day, I shambled back to my barracks after hours on the obstacle course to find a yellow envelope on my bunk. "'I have decided to accept your proposal,' the telegram said. "'Love, Lydia.'" So she came down to the piney woods of Greensboro, North Carolina, to marry me. A two-day pass was the most I could wrangle. I raced into town where I got us a room and spent my private's pay on a $12 ring. I was a gangly kid in uniform, but Lydia in a marvelous violet bridal suite was a vision that still shimmers in my mind. As we walked to the church, a shower opened over us, Who cared? We ran laughing up the steps and inside to the altar. Lydia and I have now celebrated our golden wedding anniversary. That's a long time. But half a century, two children, and one wondrous grandson later, it seems more than a time tick since I stood beside my girl, my wife, in that Carolina church.
4: A broken man with heartaches A dreamer Failure, it seemed Half a man was I without you With no faith in myself Or in what I could do
0: When I first saw you Inside I felt like I was
2: Edition of Nightlight, shining God's Love Light to the
1: world. And this is a special Valentine's edition of Nightlight. Got some wonderful stories still to share with you. Like this one, which is called One More Kiss from Rose. One More Kiss from Rose by Laura Lagana. Mr. Kenny returned to our unit at the hospital frequently. He was a retired executive, a widower, and cancer had taken its toll over the last three years. The cancer had metastasized from his colon to all of his vital organs. This would probably be his last admission, and I believe he knew it. Some patients are known to be problems because of behaviour changes that often accompany major diseases. When people are suffering, they aren't aware of what they say or do to people and frequently they lash out at the first person who enters their room. All things considered, every nurse is well aware of these circumstances. The more experienced nurses have acquired knowledge in how to handle such cases. Of course, this is where I come in the new kid on the block, in a manner of speaking. For days, the other nurses talked about Mr. Kenny at report, and there were special staff meetings to decide how to handle his outrageous behaviour. Everyone tried to spend as little time as possible while in his room. Sometimes he threw things at the nurses and other staff members if they so much as looked at him in the wrong way. One evening, While on a particularly busy shift, we had more than our share of emergency admissions on the already overcrowded medical surgical unit. Mr. Kenny picked this same evening to refuse his medications and decided to throw every large object that was well within his reach while cursing at the top of his lungs. I could hardly believe that a terminally ill man of 81 could reach that volume and cause so much damage. While I cautiously entered the room, I started talking. What can I do for you, Mr. Kenny? What seems to be the problem? There's such a ruckus in here that even the visitors are terrified. I don't know what to think of it. The other patients are trying to get sleep. An annoyed Mr. Kenny put down his next projectile that seemed to be aimed at me and asked me to sit in the chair next to his bed for a minute. Knowing I didn't really have the time, I still said, ''Okay.'' As I sat on the edge of the chair, Mr. Kenny proceeded to share some of his life with me. He started by saying, ''No one understands how hard it is, how long it's been since I felt well. It's been so long since anyone has even taken the time to really look at me, to listen to me, and to care.'' A long silence followed, and I wondered if this wouldn't be the best time to politely leave— But I didn't have the heart something told me to stay with this man after what seemed like an hour he finally said it's been so long since I've had my rose with me my lovely sweet rose we would always kiss good night and that made everything better no matter what happened that day rose's kiss always made everything better oh god How I would give anything for one more kiss from Rose. Then Mr. Kenny started crying. He held onto my hand and said, I I know you must think I'm crazy, but I know my life is almost over. I look forward to being with my Rose again. My life is hell this way. I really appreciate your taking the time to listen to to really listen to me. I know you're terribly busy. I know you care. I don't mind at all. While I prepare to give you your medication, is there anything else I can do for you? Please, call me Joseph, he said, as he rolled over very cooperatively. I gave him his injections, and he thought for a few moments before answering my question. As I was almost finished, he finally said, "'There is one last favor you could do for me.' "'What is it, Joseph?' I asked. "'Then he leaned over the side of the bed and said in a hushed voice, "'Could you just give me a good-night kiss?' "'Rose's kisses always made everything better. "'Could you just give me a kiss good-night, please?' "'Oh, God, how I would give anything for one more kiss!' From Rose. So I did. I walked over and placed a huge kiss on his cheek. It felt right to kiss a dying man in the place of his rose. During report the next day, the nurses said that Mr. Kenny had slipped peacefully away during the night. It is wonderful to know how strong true love can be. To be inseparable even after death. I was so honored that Mr. Kenny asked me to give him one more kiss from Rose. <laughs>
2: That love is the way
1: That you're hearing on this special Valentine's edition of Nightlight. Taken from two albums called Love's Answer and On Love Will Sail. These albums are around... Ooh, must be... Just over 30 years old, and they feature some of the artists that you still hear on my nightlight programs because they're still recording, like Jerry Palladino and Michael Fogarty, uh, Singing Sam, that's Sam Halbert, and then there's some others that I haven't received any new material from. I don't know where they are now, and that's uh, Rachel of Peter and Rachel of the Stars and Beggars group. Praise the Lord! But beautiful beautiful songs and wonderful stories and here's another one and it's called Thelma. Thelma by Shari Smith. Even at the age of 75, Thelma was very vivacious and full of life. When her husband passed away, her children suggested that she move to a senior living community. A gregarious and life-loving person Thelma decided to do so. Shortly after moving in, Thelma became a self-appointed activities director, coordinating all sorts of things for the people in the community to do, and quickly became very popular and made many friends. When Thelma turned 80, her newfound friends showed their appreciation by throwing a surprise birthday party for her. When Thelma entered the dining room for dinner that night, she was greeted by a standing ovation and one of the coordinators led her to the head table. The night was filled with laughter and entertainment, but throughout the evening Thelma could not take her eyes off a gentleman sitting at the other end of the table. When the festivities ended, Thelma quickly rose from her seat and rushed over to the man. Pardon me, Thelma said. Please forgive me if I made you feel uncomfortable by staring at you all night. I just couldn't help myself from looking your way you see you look just like my fifth husband your fifth husband replied the gentleman forgive me for asking but uh, how many times have you been married with that a smile came across Thelma's face as she responded four they were married shortly after My Favourite Love Story by Galen Drake My Favourite Love Story is also a true one. Soon after he was married, Thomas More, the famous 19th century Irish poet, was called away on a business trip. Upon his return, he was met at the door not by his beautiful bride, but by the family doctor. Your wife is upstairs, said the doctor, but she has asked that you do not come up. And then Moore learned the terrible truth. His wife had contracted smallpox. The disease had left her once flawless skin pocked and scarred. She had taken one look at her reflection in the mirror and commanded that the shutters be drawn and that her husband never see her again. Moore would not listen. He ran upstairs and threw open the door of his wife's room. It was black as night inside. Not a sound came from the darkness. Groping along the wall, Moore felt for the gas jets. A startled cry came from the black corner of the room No, don't light the lamps! Moore hesitated, swayed by the pleading in the voice. Go, she begged. Please go. This is the greatest gift I can give you now. Moore did go. He went down to his study. Where he sat up most of the night prayerfully writing, not a poem this time, but a song. He had never written a song before, but now he felt it more natural to his mood than simple poetry. He not only wrote the words, he wrote the music too, and the next morning, as soon as the sun was up, he returned to his wife's room. He felt his way to a chair and sat down. Are you awake? he asked. I am came a voice from the far side of the room. But you must not ask to see me. You must not press me, Thomas. I will sing to you then, he answered. And so for the first time, Thomas More sang to his wife the song that still lives today. Believe me, If all those endearing young charms which I gaze on so fondly today were to change by tomorrow and flee in my arms like fairy gifts fading away, thou wouldst still be adored. As this moment thou art, let thy loveliness fade as it will. Moore heard a movement from the dark corner where his wife lay in her loneliness waiting. He continued... Let thy loveliness fade as it will, And around the dear ruin Each wish of my heart Would entwine itself verdantly still. The song ended. As his voice trailed off on the last note, Moore heard his bride rise. She crossed the room to the window, Reached up, And slowly drew open the shutters.
2: In every way In all I do help me to myself And to you be true Not what I say But what I live Not what I take But what I give In every song that I may write Help me to express what's deep inside Not just new words cleverly sung But let my heart fill my pen fill my tongue. Help me to yield, I pray. Not to do things my own way. To do your will. Help me to myself. Part, help me to see how to give to them the love you've given me that it may
1: Verse roles mary was married to a male chauvinist they both worked full-time but he never did anything around the house and certainly not any housework that he declared was woman's work but one evening mary arrived home from work to find the children bathed a load of wash in the washing machine and another in the dryer dinner on the stove and a beautifully set table complete with flowers she was astonished and she immediately wanted to know what was going on. It turned out that George, her husband, had read a magazine article that suggested working wives would be more romantically inclined if they weren't so tired from having to do all the housework in addition to holding down a full-time job. The next day, she couldn't wait to tell her friends in the office. How did it work out, they said. Well, it was a great dinner, Mary said. George even cleaned up, helped the kids with their homework, folded the laundry, and put everything away. But what about afterward? Her friends wanted to know. It didn't work out, Mary said. George was too tired.
2: Shining Love's Light You're listening to Nightlight
1: Well, we're coming down to the last part of the program. I haven't had time to play you all of the wonderful inspirations and songs that I'd planned. Just don't have room to fit them in. I have time for two more songs and one more inspiration. It's one I want to make sure that I can squeeze in because it's an absolutely amazing, miraculous story. And that's coming up after this next song. Let's have one from Sam Halbert singing Sam. Don't know how I love you.
5: Well, I don't know how I love you When I've never held your hand I've never kissed you once And yet it's true I've never had the pleasure To smell your sweet perfume You see, I don't know how I love you But I do I know that sweet abandon That fills your very soul And sometimes you feel just like a little child And the beauty of creation Seems to mean a whole lot more And your heart feels free of pain And running wild I don't know how I love you Don't, I don't know, but it's true I can feel it growing stronger Every day that I go through And if it's hard believing Then it's a miracle, but it's true Cause only God knows how I love you But I do Well, my friends all think I'm crazy And I'm sure that you do too It's a sure thing that I'm hooked on, you know who So just let me go on dreaming If the dream is about you Cause I don't know how I love you But I do The few times that I've seen you in a photo or on TV I got this funny feeling when I saw you And the way you play your music from your heart and straight to me Well, I don't know how I love you, but I do I don't know how I love you, no I don't know, but it's true, I can feel it growing stronger every day that I go through, and if love is just for people who are together and nothing's new, then only God knows how I love you, but it's true. No, I don't know how I love you No, I don't know, but it's true And I can feel it growing stronger Every day that I go through And if it's hard believing Then it's a miracle, but it's true Cause only God knows how I love you But I do Oh, I love you Yes, I do
1: Apples by Hermann Rosenblatt It is cold, so bitter cold, on this dark winter day in 1942. But it is no different from any other day in this Nazi concentration camp. I stand shivering in my thin rags, still in disbelief that this nightmare is happening. I'm just a young boy. I should be playing with friends, I should be going to school, I should be looking forward to the future, to growing up and marrying and having a family of my own. But those dreams are for the living, and I'm no longer one of them. Instead, I'm almost dead. "'surviving from day to day, from hour to hour, "'ever since I was taken from my home "'and brought here with tens of thousands of other Jews. "'Will I still be alive tomorrow?' "'Back and forth, I walk next to the barbed wire fence, "'trying to keep my emaciated body warm. "'I am hungry, but I've been hungry for longer than I want to remember. "'I'm always hungry. "'Edible food seems like a dream.' Each day, as more and more of us disappear, the happy past seems like a mere dream, and I sink deeper and deeper into despair. Suddenly I notice a young girl walking past on the other side of the barbed wire. She stops and looks at me with sad eyes, eyes that seem to say that she understands, that she too cannot fathom why I am here. I want to look away, oddly ashamed for this stranger to see me like this, but I cannot tear my eyes from hers. Then she reaches into her pocket and pulls out a red apple, a beautiful, shiny red apple. Oh, how long has it been since I've seen one? She looks cautiously to the left and to the right, and then with a smile of triumph, quickly throws the apple over the fence. I run to pick it up holding it in my trembling, frozen fingers. In my world of death, this apple is an expression of life, of love. I glance up in time to see the girl disappearing into the distance. The next day, I cannot help myself. I'm drawn at the same time to that spot near the fence. Am I crazy for hoping she will come again? Of course. But in here... I cling to any tiny scrap of hope. She has given me hope, and I must hold tightly to it. And again she comes, and again she brings me an apple, flinging it over the fence with that same sweet smile. This time I catch it, and hold it up for her to see. Her eyes twinkle. Does she pity me? Perhaps. I do not care, though. I am just so happy to gaze at her. And for the first time in so long, I feel my heart move with emotion. For seven months, we meet like this. Sometimes we exchange a few words, sometimes just an apple. But she is feeding more than my belly, this angel from heaven. She's feeding my soul, and somehow I know I am feeding hers as well. One day, I hear frightening news. We're being shipped to another camp. This could mean the end for me, and it definitely means the end for me and my friend. The next day, when I greet her, my heart is breaking and I can barely speak as I say what must be said. Do not bring me an apple tomorrow, I tell her. I am being sent to another camp. We will never see each other again turning before i lose all control i run away from the fence i cannot bear to look back if i did i know she would see me with tears streaming down my face months pass and the nightmare continues but the memory of this girl sustains me through the terror the pain the hopelessness over and over in my mind i see her face her kind eyes i hear her gentle words i taste Those apples. And then one day, just like that, the nightmare is over. The war has ended. Those of us who are still alive are freed. I have lost everything that was precious to me, including my family. But I still have the memory of this girl. A memory I carry in my heart and gives me the will to go on as I move to America to start a new life. Years pass. It is 1957. I'm living in New York City. A friend convinces me to go on a blind date with a lady friend of his. Reluctantly, I agree. But she is nice, this woman named Roma. And like me, she's an immigrant, so we have at least that in common. Where were you during the war? Roma asks me gently, in that delicate way, Immigrants ask one another questions about those years. "'I was in a concentration camp in Germany,' I reply. Roma gets a faraway look in her eyes, as if she's remembering something painful yet sweet. "'What is it?' I ask. "'I am just thinking about something from my past, Herman,' Roma explains in a voice suddenly very soft. "'You see, when I was a young girl,' I lived near a concentration camp. There was a boy there, a prisoner, and for a long while I used to visit him every day. I remember I used to bring him apples. I would throw the apple over the fence, and he would be so happy. Roma sighs heavily and continues, It is hard to describe how we felt about each other. After all, we were young, and we only exchanged a few words when we could, but I can tell you there was, there was much love there. I assume he was killed, like so many others, but I cannot bear to think that, and so I try to remember him as he was for those months we were given together. With my heart pounding so loudly, I think it will explode, I look directly at Roma and ask, and did that boy say to you one day, "'Do not bring me an apple tomorrow, I am being sent to another camp?' "'Why, yes,' roma responds her voice trembling but herman how on earth could you possibly know that i take her hands in mine and answer because i was that young boy roma for many moments there's only silence we cannot take our eyes from each other and as the veils of time lift we recognize the soul behind the eyes the dear friend we once loved so much whom we have never stopped loving whom we have never stopped remembering finally i speak look roma i was separated from you once and i don't ever want to be separated from you again now i am free and i want to be together with you forever dear will you marry me I see that same twinkle in her eye that I used to see as Roma says yes I will marry you and we embrace and the embrace we long to share for so many months but the barbed wire came between us now nothing ever will again almost 40 years have passed since that day when I found my Roma again Destiny brought us together the first time during the war to show me a promise of hope and now it had reunited us to fulfill that promise. When I read that story for the first time just yesterday. And I think it's already one of my all time favorites. I hope you've enjoyed this special Valentine's edition of Nightlight. We'll end with one of my all time favorite inspirational songs. This one also from Michael Fogarty and has some wonderful advice for all of you Valentines. God bless you. I look forward to being back with you next time for another edition of.
4: I love